Welcome to Unity of Fairfax, a positive path for spiritual living and spiritual center for education, practice, and service in Northern Virginia. We hope you find inspiration in this week's message. Amen. That is a song about unity's fifth principle. It's not just enough to know the truth. We must live the truth that we know. And that's what we're about. So for the month of August, we have, there's a, I hear an echo. Is there an echo? Okay, Amy's going to, I, I kind of like it because like, it's like being on the big valley. Remember that the echo is really powerful because oh, this is a community of power. Our teachings are about empowerment in the unity movement, about getting out there and doing what must be done in the outer world as well as going inside here and here and doing what must be done so that our words and our actions and our thoughts and our beliefs are in alignment so that not only are we living in a consciousness of peace in ourselves, we are living that consciousness in a world all around us. So for the month of August, we have based our Sunday messages on the book Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman, one of the 20th century's best and most powerful theologians, who really had a vision that inspired Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. He was a mentor to Dr. King and a college roommate to King's father, as a matter of fact who had a vision that all people must live together, that we must not get sucked into the cancer of hatred and deception and fear, but rather live from the centrality of love and do so in such a way that we liberate ourselves not as well as the world all around us. So we've been focusing on that in our uh, Sunday talks, and we'll continue that today as well. Additionally, you may know, have noticed if you saw a newspaper or have heard us in the last month, yesterday was the 60th anniversary of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And the unity ministries of the, the DMV gathered together, many of us who met up yesterday from the Unity of Gaithersburg, Unity of Fairfax, Unity of Washington, D.C., to have an experience together of do, do, doing what must be done to co-create a world that works for everyone. We also had individuals who stayed here, came to the church to gather to watch together all these amazing speakers and a reminder of what has been accomplished in the co-creation of a world that works for everyone and what still remains to be done. So we're really grateful for that. And this uh, month I've asked members of Unity of... Yesterday was the 103rd anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment in this country that gave women the right to vote. It is, a, it is worth acknowledging because we want to ensure that personal empowerment of everyone is acknowledged and not impeded in any way. So ladies, Yay, congratulations. Make sure you are all registered to vote. And now we'll hear from Barbara Robinson, a true hero in the world. If you, I hope you all get to know her better. She's an amazing lady. Thank you, Reverend Russ. Uh, good morning. Good morning. I was at the March on Washington. Uh, I was born and raised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the oldest of eight children. Um, I grew up in a working-class neighborhood on the same street as my mother, where my grandmother lived in the row house next to her mother, and my family lived five doors down the street, and my aunt lived one 
street over. Many of the families in my integrated neighborhood were multi-generational. I attended the same elementary, junior, and senior high schools as my mother. Uh, and I had one teacher in elementary school who was my mother's teacher. Um, our schools were all within walking distance of home, and we went in our little groups every morning. Uh, as I grew up, my neighborhood was changing. And I could tell that because when I was in first grade, half of my class was white. All of the teachers, the administrators, the school nurse, school counselor were all white. Um, it wasn't until I was in sixth grade that we got our first black teacher, who happened to be a man, which was unusual. By the time I reached 12th grade and was ready to graduate, there was only one white student left in the school. Philadelphia was changing. I didn't experience the overt racism of colored only or white only signs and drinking fountains, and everybody traveled freely on public transportation. But discrimination in the North is often more subtle. I participated in several protests, but I didn't have the same kind of intense training or mentorship in nonviolent protest methods as Joanne had. We, um, and it's sort of a shame because even though we, even though we were victims of discrimination, some of it seemed far away. What I knew about discrimination in the South, I saw on television and I wasn't particularly touched by it at that time. When the 1963 march occurred, I was an 18-year-old sophomore at the first historically black college in the United States, which was founded in 1837. My family didn't want me to attend the march. They were concerned about threats for violent, violence and the ability of the organizers to maintain the control of such a large crowd. They were expecting 100,000 people. The fear was well-grounded. There were threats of violence by Nazis. There were threats to kill Dr. King. They were going to assassinate A. Philip Randolph, and they were gonna make sure that we went home. But I was living on campus, and I was 18, and I decided I was going to go to Washington with my friends. I told my mother after. <laughs> when we arrived in Washington, it was amazing, the uh, number of buses and crowds and people, and the fact that the group was integrated. And I think it was one of the first large integrated <laughs> marches in the country. The mood, of the, the mood of the marchers and the participants of the march was tranquil. There was none of the anger that you might expect from a group of people who were coming to protest for their rights. The group was integrated, 
black and white, young and old, Asian, Hispanic, children, grandparents. The National Park Service estimated that 60,000 of the 250,000 marchers were white. Crowd expectations uh, were exceeded. There were 250,000 people instead of the 100,000 expected. And no, I didn't hear the dream speech. As a matter of fact, um, in those days there were no jumbotrons. The group had planned for 100,000 people. And although there had been a uh, state-of-the-art speaker system installed, it had been sabotaged the night before the march. Well, what happened was the people who installed it were not able to fix it, but the Army Corps of Engineers was able to put up a system that did work. I don't know, Joanne, could you hear? Yeah. So it was sort of in and out, but I was not in the group that was far, uh, close enough to really hear everything that was going on. I must say that it was uh, one of the great experiences of my life. I left having met many people and learned a lot, and I returned to campus committed to becoming more active, more aware, and more involved in the civil rights movement. I think for many of us, to be honest, who lived in the northern states, it was easy to let a lot of it pass us by. Uh, as I look back at the 1963 march, I realized how little I knew of its history. People tend now to refer to it as Dr. King's March on Washington, when it was the Washington March for Jobs and Freedom. And although Dr. King was an important part of the march and certainly gave the speech that became the symbol of the march and of the civil rights movement. The march involved many people in many groups. Um, I thought that I was a little smarter than most people because I knew about Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph. Uh, but I realized that there was a lot that I didn't know about the organizers or how the march came to be. And I would like to share with you a little bit of what I've learned as I've tried to educate myself about why the march happened and why we continue. Why the march? The march was to focus attention on employment, discrimination, civil rights, abuses against African-Americans, Latinos, and other disenfranchised groups, and to support the Civil Rights Act that the Kennedy administration was attempting to pass through Congress at that time. Who planned the march? Uh, Reverend Sharpton has talked about yesterday's march being a continuation of the march of 1963. Had history been different, it might have been the fourth continuation of the March on Washington. The 1963 march was planned by and organized by A. Philip Randolph, 
who at the time was president of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and vice president of the AFL-CIO. And his assistant, Bayard Rustin, a brilliant strategist in nonviolent protests who had studied in India with Gandhi. Um, and I've been told he was a mentor to Dr. King on nonviolent protest methods. This was the third march that they had planned, the march in 1963. The first two were canceled. In 1941, they planned to bring 100,000 black workers to march in Washington to protest discriminatory housing during the World War II military, uh, by World War II military contractors. The march was planned to take place on July 1st. Faced with the prospect of this mass protest, President Franklin D. Roosevelt issued Executive Order 8802 on June 25th. This order established the Committee on Fair Employment Practice and banned discriminatory hiring in the, de in the defense industry. The threat of a second march in 1948 resulted in President Truman signing Executive Order 199981, desegregation of the armed forces. As I mentioned, the March of 1963 was very broad-based. It was originally planned to take place in 1962, but because of the difficulty, you know what it's like trying to get a group of people together to plan or execute anything. It was decided to uh, wait until 1963. But the sponsorship of the group of the March was union, religious groups, and civil rights groups. Um, according to the organizing manual for the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, there were 10 chairmen. And I'd like to mention them because of the organizations they represented. Matthew Amon, Executive Director of the Catholic Conference on Interracial Justice. Reverend Eugene Carson Blake, Vice Chairman of the Commission on Race Relations of the National Council of Churches of Christ in America. James Farmer, National Director of the Commission on Racial Equality. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., President of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. John Lewis, Chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who at later became uh, Congressman John Lewis. Rabbi Joachim Prince, chairman of the American Jewish, Count, uh, American Jewish Conference. A. Philip Randolph, president of the Negro American Labor Council. Walter Ruther, president of the United Automobile, Aerospace, and Agricultural Implement Workers of America, AFLCIO. Roy Wilkins, Executive Director of the NAACP, and Whitney Young, Executive Director of the Urban League. As you can imagine, trying to get these powerful people together to plan was quite a task. One person I'd also like to mention is Dorothy Height, 
who was very much involved. But at the time, women were not given much recognition for their participation. The group had 10 demands, civil rights, which had to do with civil rights legislation, uh, withholding federal funds from programs that discriminated, desegregation of all school districts in 1963, enforcement of the 14th Amendment, uh, an executive order banning discrimination in all housing supported by federal funds, and giving the Attorney General the right to institute injunctive suits where constitutional rights were violated. A national minimum wage was also proposed. Uh, governments show that anything less than $2 fails to do this. At the time, they were looking at a $2 minimum wage. Uh, and they wanted reinstitution of the Federal Fair Employment Practices Act, barring discrimination. As I said, the march was originally planned for 1962 and postponed. At that time, they viewed, uh, at that time, they planned a two-day march with visits to congressional offices, uh, and other kinds of demonstrations. When the organizing group got together, which, which was comprised of the 10 people I mentioned, they decided that it would make better sense to have a one-day march. Uh, so in 1963, the march was organized, and it was planned within three months. Randolph was responsible for planning, for programming coordination, and Bayard Rustin was responsible for the day-to-day -day planning and logistics. Rustin was a detailed person who planned everything, from training marshals for crowd control using nonviolent methods, to dealing with the sound system and the porta potties He knew that in order to maintain control over such a large group, and as I said, they were expecting 100,000 people. They really needed to have an organized structure. So he developed a manual which had everything, everything, why we're doing it, what we're expecting, what's going to happen after, what we're expecting from the president, what we're expecting from Congress, where to catch your bus, how to make sure you have food to eat during the day that you're there. Um, what to do about children and overnight accommodations if you needed to be there. How do we leave Washington? How do we get there? He developed, as I said, he developed this manual and he coordinated 200 activists and local organizers using this guide, using this manual to provide guidance in publicizing, recruiting marchers, fundraising, coordinating travel and logistics, including a system of marshals and group captains who were responsible for assisting marchers and helping to maintain order. One of my favorite examples of uh, 
the things that he coordinated came from a videotape I viewed that was from the National Archives, and it showed a group of black and white volunteers in a big ballroom um, lined up across two tables making cheese sandwiches for the march. In two days, they prepared 80,000 sandwiches. The other was an assembly line that developed in front of the Washington Monument. They decided that they didn't want people to bring their own placards and signs. They didn't want the danger of having people bring signs that were um, inflammatory or defamatory. So they developed their own system and they had, again, lines of people putting these placards together and stapling them to sticks. And there were piles and piles and piles of them in front of the Washington Monument. On August 28th, more than 2,000 buses, 21 chartered trains, 10 chartered airplanes, and innumerable private cars arrived for the march. According to the records, 450 buses left from Harlem alone. And the state of Maryland reported that 100 buses per hour were passing through the Baltimore Harbor Tunnel by 8 a.m. The United Automobile Workers alone sponsored transportation for 5,000 members. As you can imagine, security was an issue. There was concern that there was concern that it would be impossible to bring thousands of militant Negroes to Washington without incidents and possible rioting. I was amazed at the security, the amount of security uh, that there was for the march. Washington, D.C. mobilized 5,000 police officers. That included regular police officers um, and uh, deputized firemen. The federal government mustered 2,000 National Guards and brought 3,000 soldiers in by helicopter from North Carolina. Uh, the Pentagon had 19,000 soldiers stationed in the suburbs of Washington. And they were all prepared to implement a coordinated strategy called Operation Steep Hill in case of violence and riots. The jails shifted inmates to other prisons in case there was a need for mass arrests. Liquor sales were banned in Washington, D.C. Hospitals stockpiled blood plasma and cancer elective surgeries. Baseball games were canceled. Uh, marchers, as I mentioned, the organizers of the march also received permission for private marshals and recruited 2,000 more, uh, 1,000 of whom were police officers. And their role was to maintain crowd control with the marchers. Uh, although they had no, uh, no authority to deal with people outside of the marchers. But Rustin 
and Randolph and the, the organizers were concerned that this be a peaceful march. They were interested in nonviolent protest, not riots, not fights, and they were determined that that would happen. And the system of captains who were responsible for the local groups and marshals were well-trained and well-coordinated. The actual program uh, included speeches by the 10 chairmen, a tribute to Negro women fighters for freedom led by Daisy Bates, who was the only female speech participant, prayers by the Archbishop of Washington, the Reverend Patrick Boyle, and by Rabbi Yuri Miller, president of the Synagogue Council, Synagogue Council of America. Songs were included by Mahalia Jackson, Marian Anderson, and the Evie Jesse Choir. The last speech of the day was to be a four-minute speech by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Inspired by a remark that Mahalia Jackson made to him from the, from the uh, stage, she asked him to share his dream a dream that he had apparently shared with her. And that is what became the I, had, I Have a Dream speech. The most important thing to come out of the march for many of us. The benediction was made by uh, Dr. Benjamin May of Morehouse College, and another important historically black college. What happened as a result of the march? After the march, the chairman of the march met at the White House with President Kennedy and Vice President Johnson to discuss the need to push civil rights legislation through Congress. The result of these, these meetings, this meeting and meetings that follow was the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which reflected many of the demands of the march. I felt it was important to share this history because as the years have passed, we've forgotten that the effort that brought the march together was broad-based, and we've become more and more concerned about our own groups to the exclusion of others. Um, we've forgotten that the rights of all of us, our civil rights are rights for all of us. I was in encouraged by yesterday's March program, which sought to acknowledge and correct some of the errors of the past marches, such as exclusion of women members of the LGBTQ and other communities, and by the acknowledgement and support of support and participation by diverse communities, American communities. Most recently, we've seen the rights of women compromised, anti-LGBTQ measures promoted, restrictions on voting rights, book bannings, 
other assaults on our civil rights, the civil rights of all Americans. I'm encouraged that the March of 2023 reaffirms our commitment to work together, all of us, to ensure that the rights of all Americans are protected. Thank you for allowing me to share. is what a shiro looks like. <laughs> Thank you, Barbara. Wow. Wow. It's important to understand history, just as it is important to listen to one another's stories, for we are all history makers, and we are all living into unity's fifth principle of giving action to what we believe. This is a wonderful testimony. So I want to wrap up the series we've been doing based on the work of Howard Thurman with an encapsulation of the chapter entitled The Centrality of the Love Ethic. And so I've decided to paraphrase that in a short quip. Community is curative. Division is disastrous. That is a lived reality on two levels. On the interior level, whenever we are fractured internally and whenever we don't honor and appreciate the fullness of our human experience, we make ourselves a little crazy with the judgments about ourselves and this part of ourself is good and that part of ourself is bad and this is helpful and this is unhelpful. Ultimately, we are called in a process of compassionate self-awareness to make peace with and accept the full reality of who we are. When we do so, then we can, with compassion and empowerment, change the parts that are not helpful and build upon the parts that are. That same process happens in an exterior fashion as well. One of the things that Dr. Thurman says in his book is that we must break free of identification of the other as the enemy. As an example, he says that everyone will say or do something they kind of wish they hadn't done or was unskillful or was hurtful. But that is not the totality of the other. The other, whether they have said or done or not said or done these hateful, harmful, hurtful things, is more than that too. There is goodness. There is kindness. We just have to be sure that we are having a holistic perspective. So when we come together in community, Thurman advises and says that the, the religion of Jesus says community is curative. And if we look at that model that was laid out by Jesus, then we see that everyone was welcome. There were no exclusions. Children were to be listened to. Women were to be respected. Even the Romans had a place in the sinners and the tax collectors and, and the drug... No, they didn't have drug addicts back then. They probably had alcoholics. Everyone had a place. 
You know, I think about the, the healing that happens in the rooms all around towns where people practice those 12 steps so that they can find serenity once again and find their lives once again. The same thing happens on the collective level when we come together with various groups and other individuals and say, I am willing to listen to your story because you are an individualized expression of the creative magnificence of God. And we come together in community because you will listen to my story and help me be my best self so I can help you be your best self and that together we can co-create a world that works for everyone. So it is incumbent upon us as Unity Truth students and as individuals to know the value of community, to recognize the importance of creating spaces, every space where all people of all ages can live harmoniously and sustainably on planet Earth. Because we must be harmonious and we must be sustainable because even the earth herself is saying to us, y'all need to get your act together because I'm pissed or something along those lines. Division, as we know, is hurtful. Division can't make the world a better place. Division can highlight, though, for us where the work needs to be done where we need to build the bridges, where we need to, with love, speak truth to power, and where we need to, with compassion, take the actions that lead to the results that create the beloved community. That's what the march was about. That's what the work is still about. That's what we've been about in the survey of Jesus and the disinherited. That's what we are about in the unity movement. Do the work. You've got to do, do, do what must be done. And do it with love. Because hatred, deception, and fear have no place in the kingdom of God. Peace be with you and namaste. Thank you for tuning into Unity of Fairfax podcast. You're welcome to join us live in Oakton, Virginia, every Sunday at 11 a.m. Or view our live stream services from our website at unityoffairfax.org. We appreciate our donations to support this podcast to make our message of positive, practical spirituality more accessible to all. See you next time.